0: Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, My name is Dom Fay, and we have uh, Peter Catt joining me first, as always. And I'm going to you first, Peter, because I've just noticed you've got another fun Zoom background today, which has been a a bit of an ongoing uh, theme on the podcast. Uh, Talk us through this one.
1: Uh, This one is one of the gaping void uh, images, and it says, no one gets there alone. Beautiful. Uh, my project of overturning the individualistic paradigm
0: wonderful well that might have some tie into part of what we're discussing today sue grimmett is also here as well um, with the bookshelf background so you're going to have to invest in some some more colorful and creative backgrounds
2: i know i i figured peters are too good and i didn't want to try competing so we just (laughs) go with the like like many of us yeah it's very good to be here after missing the last one so nice to be back
0: yeah, very lovely to have you here with us. And look, today's guest is somebody we've been hoping to to record an episode with for uh, a while. Uh, Dr. Gary Deverell is the inaugural Vice-Chancellor's Fellow in Indigenous Theologies at the University of Divinity in Melbourne and the author of Gondwana Theology, uh, he's also got a new book coming out this year, Contemplating Country, More Gondwana Theology. Well, I say later this year, uh, Gary, as you join us, that's the hope that it's going to be later this year. But uh, it's going to be thrilling at any rate when it does uh, get released. Thank you so much for, for making time for this conversation. Uh, very pleased to be with you all. Well, look, there's uh, plenty of threads we're hoping to explore today. Um, I think probably a big theme is going to be how maybe the the common um, Western conception of Indigenous spirituality isn't quite actually accurate to to what it is. Maybe it's a bit too sentimental or a little bit too airy-fairy compared to the the more practical, um, lived-out experience of Indigenous spirituality. Before we get into any of that, though, Gary, I I was hoping you could maybe... um, just share with us a, a little bit about, about yourself, about your people and, and uh, your life.
3: Sure. So I'm a trolley man. That means that I come from the northeast corner of what we call Lutruwita, and everyone else calls Tasmania. So that's where my mob are from. Um, obviously, uh, you know, I grew up in a family that had, uh, you know, an Aboriginal side and a kind of immigrant Cornish side. So uh, on my dad's side of, family, uh, of about, uh, on my side of the family, we had lots of stories about our country and our ancestors. And on my mum's side of the family, we had lots of stories from the Bible uh, because uh, it was really my mum's uh, sort of Cornish Baptist origins that, uh, that uh, predominated in the household to a very large degree. So I just grew up with these two sides of the family, two sacred stories, if you like, two sacred texts one uh, coming coming out of the Bible and the other one coming out of the country uh, yeah. of my ancestors. So, yeah, um, you know, I, I'm an Anglican priest these days, uh, not working in a parish so much, associated with St Paul's Cathedral, but uh, obviously working on this um, academic stuff, the New School of Indigenous Studies um, mm. at the University of Divinity. So that takes up most of my time these days, don't
0: yeah, beautiful. Well, look, the, the book um, that you have released is uh, stunning in in terms of what it does, uh, I think, in in recapturing, uh, or maybe for the first time for many of us, capturing a, a true essence of what the Indigenous view of spirituality actually is. And uh, it's an interesting, uh, quite a challenging book to read in some ways, I think, because uh, I probably am, am one of many whose view of spirituality has been focused on these uh, mystical kind of encounters or experiences and and this idea of communing with something greater or whatever else, it, you know, language you might use. But you very early on in the book, um, you do focus on the idea that the indigenous view of spirituality was was nothing quite as uh, majestic, magical, otherworldly as that, and, and actually something um, much more everyday. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, of course, Tom. Uh, It it does seem to me that in the kind of consumer environment that we live in, um, the spirituality has become just another commodity to be bought or sold. So there's a whole plethora of marketplace of spiritualities out there. And it seems to me that because of that um, consumer marketplace, the more spectacular, the better if you want to sell your product, you know. Indigenous people generally um, don't have a particularly spectacular sort of product to sell. Uh, what we have is just a way of life, a way of life that is connected to the stuff under our feet, the dirt, uh, you know, and it's about um, recognising that we are part of dirt, that we come from dirt, that we are part of the world, uh, we, we're embedded in it, uh, we're part of um, the matrix of being, which is, you know, plants and animals, as well as human beings, uh, waterways, starways above our head. We're all stardust, right? So there's a sense in which Indigenous spirituality is just about how to live humbly, uh, that is, close to the earth, uh, and and not sort of overreach, mm. uh, not put ourselves in a position where we're kind of above all that and we make decisions about that. Um, based on our own kind of um, perceived and short-term needs. So, for us, spirituality is a way of life that's very much um, embedded in this matrix of life or being that is all around us, and a, a sense of taking our place within that, rather than deciding what uh, what needs to happen for everyone else. So that's that. That's it, really. That's 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 all there is to it. It's it's not actually much more complicated
0: than that. It's a fascinating, um, I guess, shift for, for our thinking, though, and, and especially I know, Sue and Peter, in, in your roles, you often do come across seekers, people who have um, questions or some sense of wanting to explore uh, the mystery of what it is to be alive. And often when you are a seeker in this culture, it does feel a little bit consumeristic, like you give that. Parish ago, that tradition ago, maybe you buy some crystals at a shop in Byron Bay and give that a go for a while. Sort of trying to see which one's gonna give me the transcendent experience that I feel I'm here to have. I might throw this to you, Sue. How much do you think this view, the indigenous view of spirituality could actually help us to to opt out of that consumerist system and, and instead attend to the lives where we're truly actually living?
2: Yeah, I think it's desperately needed in our church today. Um, We have had such a tendency for that the church has slipped into actually aligning with culture, I think, aligning with a consumerist culture. And so what we're doing is kind of just another product amongst many in the spiritual market in some people's view, and people can come with that mindset. And instead, you know, Jesus always talked about a way and it was a way that was very an embodied incarnational way and with this the, with this practical grounded spirituality that gary's describing you know i think that can help us to break out of that consumerist paradigm in a in a way that nothing else can
0: mm. Yeah, and Peter, probably we touched on your background uh, that you've got today at the beginning of the episode, but something like this does immediately shift us from the individualistic mindset of of my needs, my desires, my hopes. What can I get out of this? Into a, a more communal way of
1: living. Well, it does, and um, one of the things that struck me about what Gary was saying was the idea that it's not spectacular um that there's an integrity about being real and so much, um, it seems to me, so much of spiritual questing is really life-denying, it's about escaping um and in its extreme form it even becomes life-denying, so it becomes nihilist, the idea that we're sort of pitching our, getting ourselves ready for the main game which comes along sometime after we're, Detached ourselves from the earth, and so it's 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 everything that the Aboriginal spirituality isn't, because um, Aboriginal spirituality invites us to feel the sense of connection we have to place, whereas that disembodied form of spirituality is about escaping everything to some Platonic heaven that is is the pure real thing and. Um, and I understand why some people seek that because life can be pretty tough, and you want to escape reality. Um, but it means that we're actually not then in the game of transforming reality to to honour the gift that we've been given as the gift of life.
0: Mm. Yeah, it reminds me, Peter, of, a, of I got a sponsored ad in my Facebook feed a little while ago for a yoga meditation retreat uh, taking place somewhere in the Northern Rivers part of, of New South Wales. Uh, it was going to cost three and a half thousand dollars for three nights, and there was, and this is one of my favourite things I've ever seen. At the very bottom, it said, "If you do not feel that you have found yourself on the trip on the retreat, you will get your money back." And I thought, what a what an amazing refund guarantee! If I don't feel I've found myself in three days at this retreat, I'll get my money back. It's such a uh, such a fascinating um, way of looking at what it is to be a human in this big mystery where we're all swimming through. Gary, as somebody from a you know the the oldest living culture we've got, as um, you know Australia's indigenous culture, do, do you just do you shake your head looking at, at the Western white view of, of what it is to be spiritual?
3: Yeah, some of it for sure. I mean, I I think it's important to uh, not make sort of wild generalizations about anyone's spirituality, including the spirituality of uh, white settlers. I think that actually it's a it's a much more um, nuanced and differentiated thing than than that. Uh, just as in the same way, I think it's it's really important to be careful about. Um, making too many generalisations about uh, Indigenous people and Indigenous spirituality, because you know we're, we're as different in our own expressions as, as anyone else. But what I would say, I, pr- I think perhaps, is that uh, you know the whole point for us of, of of living this life and being part of the the world that we're part of is is actually care. It's it's about caring for country, uh, so that country cares for us. It's about su- sustainability. It's about putting a sense of responsibility and vocation at the centre, rather than it being simply about the meeting of my perceived needs, um, if if you want to put it that way. So, so you know, Peter's uh, aphorism in his in his feed today: "Nobody gets there alone." We would say that that's not only about being part of a community and having a sort of sense of mutual responsibility in a community of human beings but it's also about the community of creation as a whole Mm. it's about us having a sense of responsibility towards you know our our feathered and furred friends it's about having a sense of responsibility towards our our treed friends i mean trees are amazing trees are Mm. amazing you know they talk to each other they send electronic signals to each other apparently through the root systems and the Fungal systems under the earth uh, when there's danger coming, you know, fire coming, for example. Um, the trees are amazing. And if we could be like trees, if we were as interconnected as trees and we were looking out for each other in that way, then what a different kind of humanity we would be, you know. So for us, it's all about learning the way that uh, the intricate matrix of life uh, on country works and, in a sense, learning to imitate that. Um, just as Christians imitate Christ or try to, mm. uh, we would say that for us, country is Christ. And it's all about learning to imitate country and find ourselves in country in exactly the same way that Christians find themselves in Christ.
1: Ooh, yeah,
0: lovely. yeah. there's a, a beautiful way in the book that you write about the idea of kin, um, which is maybe a misunderstood term. Uh, not maybe, I think it's certainly a misunderstood term um, in in a, the the white Australian view of Indigenous spirituality, probably a term thrown around um, without really knowing what we mean when we use it. Uh, Can you speak about uh, what the the word kin or how you approach the word kin, what your understanding of it is?
3: Yeah, for me, the word kin can be redeployed uh, in the direction of this sort of sense of Wider family. So uh, kin, of course, means family, uh, those we're related to biologically as it were. And in the Gospels, Jesus talks about kin as everyone who does the will of God, uh, uh, you know, but for us, kin is, is a sense of connection and mutual responsibility towards all living things, and particularly for we uh, Witten people, uh, that can actually include even just rocks, which are apparently inanimate and don't have life, but, you know, our traditions talk about the the, the life of rocks and, and the way in which rocks vibrate with the presence of our ancestors you know so for Mm. us kin is this sense of family which extends way beyond just the two or three people that we might share a household with in modern life uh to the wider tribe the wider mob but also plants animals all living things and the thing about families of course is we, we we have a strong sense most human beings of responsibility towards our families uh, we we feel a need from the very moment that we pop out into the world, uh, you know, for care and nurture. And that's part of family life, uh, caring and nurturing for one another. We just want to extend that sense of care and nurture to a, a much bigger sort of kinship network, if you like, which includes all living things, yeah.
1: Mm. Whenever I hear um, that sort of wonderful Description of kin. I think in the Western tradition, the person who came closest to that understanding was St. Francis of Assisi, who talked of even the sun and the moon being sister and brother, as well as and the earth as mother, and then you know, sister fire, and even extended it to the point where death was actually part of family. So 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 interconnected that even even death was a relative. Indeed, you know, and I, I read
3: some of those um, some of those representatives of what you might want to call a more mystical tradition uh, in, in Western Christianity. Uh, you know, Meister Eckhart would be another one who mm. seems to talk about the interconnectedness of all things, and yeah, you can't commu- you can't commune with the divine unless you do so through the mediation of a communion with. Uh, you know, the creation itself and all living things. Yeah. And, and that's very clearly there in the Franciscan tradition as well. So there are lots of points of analogy or connection, I think, between what Indigenous people talk of um, out of our ancestral dreaming stories and what some of these more mystical uh, moments within the Western tradition refer to as well. It,
0: I think for for many, um, I, I can speak certainly for myself in, in my journey, but I imagine it's more common, is, there's this sense in which um, we try to grapple with these ideas of things like kin in a very, in, within the only context we've got, which is a, a Western intellectual context. So we try to think, right, so I need to think my way into seeing everything as kin. And that's an interesting thought to an al- analyze and sit with for a while. And maybe I could make this justification as to why they're kin as well or whatever else. But we're talking about a, a different way of relating and a different way of knowing, aren't we?
3: Yeah, uh, it, it does seem to me that uh, it, it's really important um, to actualize this stuff in, the, in in one's body and not only in one's own body but the body of creation itself. So it's about um, slowing down, it seems to me. Uh, it seems to me that a lot of modern life is about moving quickly, skating over the surface of things but never mm-hmm. actually stopping to you know, see and to hear and to experience what's going on around us. Um, so I often say to people, look, to get a, get a sense of grasp of this, why don't you just, uh, for a few minutes each day, let's say half an hour each day, um, just sit in a garden, just an ordinary old garden. It can be one that's run by the council or, or it can be one that's in your backyard. If you're lucky enough to have a backyard, you know, uh, just sit there. And notice what the bees are doing. Mm. Notice what the birds are doing. Uh, Notice what the insects are doing, you know. So it's about slowing down and noticing what's going on. And and there's this whole buzz of life that's going on all the time under our very noses, but most of us are too busy to actually um, pay attention. And for us... Uh, we would say that if you want to attend to what the divine is doing in the world you actually have to attend to what the um, the creation is doing you know and if you can see the matrix of interrelationships that are happening in your garden then you might be able to slow down enough to notice what the divine is doing in the world you know So mm. to me this is this is fundamental. Um, it's about slowing down, noticing, observing, uh, and, and eventually I think you get to a point where you realise that you're part of that, right. you know. You're not just an outside observer, but you participate in this, and you can participate more freely in this if you actually know what's going on and have a sense of how everything is interrelated.
2: Mm. I think it's a lovely thing that um, in describing slowing down, that you, you come to that awareness of being part of and seeing the wholeness I think in everything because one thing that our when we stay in our heads we um you know judging and categorizing are useful things when it comes to science when you when you um trying to work out why how a particular species may function but it can get in the way a bit when we are looking at the wholeness of life we have we make binaries between plant and animal for instance you were alluding to trees how trees communicate earlier I was um up Uh, off Cairns a couple of months ago and, you know, looking at starfish and going, my goodness, you know, starfish are kind of a little bit of a way, and this is not a biological viewpoint, but just the fact that they don't have a brain and yet they have nerve endings and senses that reach out and you go, where do they fit in the scheme of things? And instead of seeing those binaries, you actually just see how we are part of a flow of life and and by cutting into clear categories, then we often um, rob ourselves of the wonder of the wholeness of the whole picture and the way it all works together and the way that we have a place in in this. Yeah, so um, I do love that idea of um, connecting, slowing down with attention and less attention into the categorizing, the judging and the labeling, and more the attention of just seeing what's happening before us and with us. Yeah, that actually, see that
0: reminds me of something Peter has said on the podcast before about when you were studying and doing, I think, your PhD, Peter, you know, right in the scientific tradition, and, and it was actually observing closely how reality works that started stirring things up in you.
1: Yeah, developing a sense of wonder out of, something that was supposed to be um, very rational, suddenly being captured by how fantastically beautiful it was.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I think this sort of paying close attention, slowing down and paying close attention, it, it is starkly different to... Maybe the more modern way we speak about meditation or the way meditation yoga can be marketed at people. I know I'm a big fan of, of the blog you you keep up, um, Gary, and you had a beautiful quote there recently where you're paraphrasing um, Zizek, the, the philosopher, and you write uh, Much of the consumer meditation industry is about patching up the tired and the stressed and the broken so that we can re engage in the very forms of neoliberal work, family, and entertainment that made us tired, stressed, and broken in the first place. And I thought that that is sort of cyclical nature, this loop of uh, how spirituality in the Western world can often just be this thing that sort of, you know, gives you a bottle of water, a quick drink of water, maybe a a bit of Gatorade to get you back out on the playing field that's destroying you in the first place. That that was such a a helpful way to think about, you know, when we're talking about this Indigenous view of things, we're not just talking about an opt-in thing that you can do to get yourself back out in the game, but it's a totally different way of kind of viewing the the interrelatedness of everything. Is that is that a, a fair summation?
3: Yeah, I think it's about playing the whole game differently rather than patching ourselves up so that we can play a game that ultimately injures us, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it does seem to me that um, if we can see ourselves as part of the matrix of life rather than masters of it, then we also begin to see the damage that we do when we skate quickly over the surface, um, leaving destruction in our wake, you know. And so we can we can start to grasp our responsibility. Um, you know, the, the paradox here is that the more we understand our, our small part in the nature of things, we also begin to see how our small part can actually do incredible damage to every other part, the butterfly effect, you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's really important to um, to do this slowing down, not only to get a bit of a sense of um, calm and purpose into our own lives, but also to re- re-inscribe a, a sense of vocation towards, you know, looking after things and making sure that things will continue to um, have life and life in all its fullness for a very long time to come, perhaps mm. another 5,000 generations. You know. um, Indigenous people have lived in this country for at least 5,000 generations and managed this country uh, very, very well. But the amount of destruction that's been done in the 235 years, uh, the last 235 years, mm. is, is extraordinary in that time scale. You know, we're we're leading the world on on extincting species. <laughs> uh this is something that we need to come to terms with and, and turn around as quickly as possible.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Look, and speaking of um playing a different game rather than patching ourselves up to keep playing this current game, another another term which is probably pivotal to that, which is also misunderstood or misrepresented alongside Kin is dreaming and the understanding of, of what dreaming actually is, the dreaming actually is. I know um, you know, the the narrative that seems to infuse most of our lives is the competitive, individualistic, free market sort of stuff. That is the bigger picture that many of us sort of have. And um and so when we think about the dreaming story, sometimes I, I think it can feel like we're assessing them by that same paradigm of what do I get out of it? What's the the factual accuracy of it historically? and uh and does it ent- entertain and engage me so it, almost the the way we approach any idea of, of those stories can um it's like trying to read a you know read a, a piece of poetry with an analytical lens instead of you know embracing it in that way so i'm curious if you can speak a little bit as well about about the idea of dreaming and, and what the word dreaming uh means to you
3: well it's uh it's it's a huge huge area um look you know the the word dreaming is obviously um you know aboriginal english um it it actually came out of a translation of some aurende words uh in the 1870s um some anthropologists were translating some big ideas um and you know we're kind of stuck with the term now even though it's probably not not the best term to use um for, for, for me, the dreaming is essentially the primordial reality, you know, the sort of fundamental reality at the heart of all things. Um, and the dreaming presents itself to us in very material ways, uh, primarily country. So I like to think, you know, again, creating analogies into the Christian tradition, I like to think of the dreaming as, as if you like, um, the, you know, the divine at the heart of all things, which presents itself in embodied and communicable and material ways in country, you know. So the dreaming is the father, the, the son is country, you know, that kind of that kind of idea. So um, for me, uh you know, the, the the narratives associated with the dreaming are really about not so much the distant past or some kind of primordial um, creation stories, although that's part of it but it's actually describing the way reality is and ought to be at any given time, uh, in any given place. And most dreaming stories, of course, are associated with very specific places, and they're actually about how to live sustainably in that place, you know. There are lots of messages in there, uh, ethical messages, uh, wisdom messages about how you pay attention to the place where you are. And take your part along with everyone else in the community that you're part of to take care of that place and to listen to, if you like, the voice of the ancestors, the divine voice of the ancestors who can guide you about how to look in that, how to uh, live in that place in a sustainable way so that there will be life in an ongoing way for all those who follow after you. You know, so the stories are very practical and very very much about the living of life uh, in a particular place. They're not sort of um, Hollywood sagas that are just there to entertain or kids' stories that are there to entertain small children as as they've been represented in various um, ways in our sort of colonial history also. They're actually about um, how to live and how to live well with others and to live well with the earth. That's, That's what the dreaming is.
1: What term would you use other than dreaming, just to sort of tease out that? So that's the fascinating, because you know, it's always been called the dreaming, and I've never actually thought about yeah. the film. So it's just interesting to have a think of yeah. what other way we would want to um, narrate I,
3: it. I, I think I think it can be, you know, the concept which appears in many of our languages, and of course there are over three hundred languages before colonisation. Um, but, you know, the, the, the term actually came into, into English via um, uh, some anthropological work mm. that was being done in Central Australia, you know, the Orante. So, um, but the concept is there in all of our dream stories mm. and it mm. can be variously translated depending on who you're talking to. If you're talking to philosophers, you might want to talk about the primordial reality. You know uh-huh. yeah if you're talking to theologians you might want to talk talk about um uh the life that is uh is is spiraling around and dancing around in that notion of the Trinity. You know mm-hmm. if you're talking to um environmentalists you might want to say well it's the it's the it's the spirit that puts everything in play in the patterns that we we're seeing and we we we're investigating, you know. So it, it depends entirely on who you're talking to. I think that these things are so fundamental that you that they're hard to apprehend mm, because mm. they're so big and yet so present in every single thing that we see and we do and we investigate and yeah. so on, that it's almost like uh, that there's an excess of information and we can't actually take it all in. So we are driven to use the language of poetry and metaphor to talk about it. So the dreaming stories, just like I would argue um, the biblical stories, are uh, ways of poetically representing realities that are far too immense and, and also far too close for us to see.
1: Mm, that's really um, helpful. Yeah.
2: The same way that the, all our stories in scripture in that way can, can strip things away and so we can see what's real. Um, with the use of metaphor and with the use of um, just telling story after story and actually try, living those stories you you can live into a sense of the way things actually are and the truth that's at the heart of everything and I, I loved um it's only since I've been reading your work Gary that I you know been, had started to see um that kind of interpretation of dreaming and the 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 what is most real.
3: yeah indeed. Uh, you know, many many of the terms that are translated dreaming can simply be uh translated as reality itself or being itself or uh the way things are or the way things ought to be, or you know, I mean that that's what we we're sort of working towards here. Um it's 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 big and immense and it's really, really close, and therefore uh you know, we can't grasp it in its entirety. Um all we can do is tell our stories, use our metaphors, um, make our analogies and um, and be happy with that, you know.
0: <laughs> I, I suppose yeah. it's, it's another sign of how so much of, of what we're talking about here in terms of connectedness, uh, a humility um, in front of the mystery of life, um, an embrace of slowing down and silence, so much of these things are uh, the basic. Basically countercultural to the the Western way of living, and uh, I was just talking to Sue on the phone before this about what we've seen in Australia with the debate around the the voice to Parliament, and how it's almost been impossible for this conversation to occur as as it did. De- you know, as the Uluru statement from the heart was was obviously founded with um you know a long period of deep listening and deep conversation, and then when the the idea of a voice to Parliament has been brought to the the white Western paradigm it has been absolutely impossible, seemingly culturally, for us to have that conversation about it similarly in a, a slow, deep listening kind of a way. Instead, it's been loud opinions. Um, you know, there seems to be four or five opinion pieces by Sky News columnists a day that are going up. And um, and a lot of people who seemingly don't know much about it but have instinctively jumped to an emotional response. Do, do you think that's been part of the problem in this debate in Australia at the moment, Gary, has been that we actually don't have the framework um, to to embrace a conversation like this in the way that we need to, to, to take it as it needs to be taken.
3: Well, yeah, I think it's very clear that that uh, the more helpful frameworks are not being applied, um, for sure. Uh, I mean, the, the difficulty here, of course, is that, you know, a colonial framework minimises the voice of Indigenous peoples but this is a proposal to allow Indigenous voices to offer a different frame. So the the, the, the paradox and potentially the tragic paradox here mm. with this proposal as, as well as all the others that have gone before in our history is that it will ultimately be the colonial frame that will have to make room for the voice and it may not be able to do that, you know. So... Uh, we're never going to get a change of frame until uh, Indigenous voices can be heard as a potential reframing of what what we mean as a country um, and what our future may be. Uh, but ultimately, because of the colonial nature of our institutions and our governance systems and so forth, um, it's not until that colonial system decides that it needs to shift that that can ever uh, take place. So. Mm. I think it's going to be difficult, very, very difficult. Even, I mean, I read a lot of pieces from people who are basically in favour of the voice. Um, but, again, it's always framed in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, colonial aspirations mm. um, rather than Indigenous aspirations. So we're, in, we're at a very difficult place in our time, uh, in our history, and... Um, but there have been plenty of other very difficult times before this, so I just I just keep reminding people that we've been here many times before, and we're just having another go. If it if there's some movement, great. If there's not, it's not the end of the world. We just keep plugging away,
2: you know. And this is I, I know I've um, heard Sam Grant and many others talk about the burden of whiteness in amongst all of this too. And when we talk about You know that we we keep plugging away, and we the healing. You know, the healing for this country is dependent on making progress. You know, there is a sense of the harm that continues to be done while truths are not told, while we can't actually talk clearly about our history and actually recognise the the that the the framework is actually doing harm to us all. It's clearly in evidence in doing harm to the country, um, but I think what hasn't been acknowledged always is the you know the that the harm that's being done to us. I know I read a piece by Jeffrey Blaney, and and I was so appalled that that he talked about there not being sufficient gratitude to the European settlers in the Uluru statement, and I was just, I just you know that 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 total blindness and deafness in a statement like that. Um, it can't even see the harm we're doing to ourselves, you know, let alone begin healing um, healing the wounds in this country and amongst our people and our shared life. And I know, Gary, you, you speak of yourself as a post-invasion Christian and I found that a very helpful way of looking at it because in terms of well, a way of expressing it instead of thinking that we can put um, colonisation back in a box and just start again. We know that's not practical. But if we're going to find a way together, Um, colonisation has happened, the harm of the last 250 years has happened, how do we actually begin to work together? That new framework of listening that we need to find is is clear, but we also need to just acknowledge um, the the harm that is in our whole paradigm and the way of seeing and the way we have Mm -hmm. an ethic of of possession of country and possession of and, and competition you know, until we can find a way through all of that, it's it's um, the country and its peoples are going to continue to suffer with the wound that um, that can't be healed. I think.
3: Mm. Yeah, indeed. Mm. Um, I mean, at the heart of all of this is is a fundamental belief, which is often held unconsciously, but it's still there and it's very very powerful. That. Um, that you know, settler colonists um, uh, have a superior view and experience of the world, and a lot of the anxiety that I think is being expressed with the columns in you know in, in newspapers at the moment is is a fear of losing control uh, over an inferior population. Um, You know, there's no prospect of that, of course, with with the small numbers that we are, and there's no prospect of that even in terms of this incredibly modest proposal um, in any way, shape or form. And yet there's this incredible paranoia and anxiety Mm -hmm. about losing control of a population which is clearly Mm -hmm. uh, unable to be trusted to manage its own affairs, you know, Mm -hmm. in any way, shape or form. So I think that's the fundamental anxiety at the, at the heart of the colonial imaginary, if you like, the social imaginary of settler colonialism. And, uh, until, uh, we're able to deal with that, not in, not in global ways, but in, in terms of our own place in the world, in our own institutions, our own schools, our churches, uh, you know, our houses of parliament, our businesses, wherever we happen to be, until we can, uh, let go of that sense of needing to control uh, an inferior population, then uh, nothing will change. Mm. And on on that, I absolutely agree with um, you know the Lydia Thorpes of the world. Um, yeah, uh, you know, I, I think that I think that unless uh, our society gets to a point. Um, not in grand narratives, but in terms of individual businesses and institutions and places of worship and stuff like that, where we can uh, actually invite Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to uh, share um, our story and our experience and our wisdom, uh, then we will never change as a society.
1: And we won't see the damage that we're doing to ourselves. Um I think Sue's point was really um, opposite um, my son moved lives in Canada and he tried he, he and his partner tried to live back in Australia a few years ago and decided they needed to move back to Canada because um as Josh put it Australia Australia because it hasn't faced its own story in any way shape or form and describes you know we had those dreadful comments uh, years ago about the you know the truth telling being labelled as the black armband view of history, um, he said that he he actually experiences Australia as an incredibly aggressive place with a collective chip on its shoulder. That he said you know Canada is far from perfect because it's got a very similar history, but he said no one in Canada would ever have used that description of truth telling and. Um, They seem to be way more settled in terms of their relationship. We've still got a long way to go, but he said, you know, he he thinks that we're 30 or 40 years behind and that it plays out in everything, the way we drive on our roads, the way we interact with each other, Um, the Australian incapacity to be polite. Um, And he thinks that until we actually face the reality of our story that we will be damaging ourselves continually; that the culture will be one of of a, of a really damaged person.
3: Yeah, I think there's good analogies to be made into uh, you know um, analyses of trauma and what happens with with mm. PTSD and the concept of moral injury. Yeah, um, the idea that you can do damage to other people um, at whatever distance. Uh, and uh, and and be unaffected by that, um, I, I think is is sheer fantasy. Um, yeah. If you wound another, then you wound yourself.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, if a people wounds another people, then you wound yourself, and mm-hmm. there's incredible uh, consequences to be paid for that. Mm-hmm. And unless we can collectively acknowledge that and collectively decide on what to do about it, then those wounds will continue to be opened. And reopened and reopened over and over and over again, uh, and and the healing will never happen. So yes, I agree.
2: And this is the core of Christianity, isn't it? You know, that, and this is why healing for the church to play a lead role here is, I think, important. We have at our heart, love one another as you love ours, as as you love yourself, and that that sense of um your 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 brother or your sister's harm is is your harm. We carry one another's sorrows. That's always there. And if, if we are going to take our faith seriously, then that is where we find ourselves, bearing one another's wounds and listening and, and hearing the hurts of one another, that we may together begin healing the hurts of one another.
1: And we do need the voice of someone from outside to show us this. Um, it was my son pointing it out to me just how damaged we were, and then going to Canada and experiencing a completely similar but different place and coming home um really opened my eyes and i remember years ago there was an american comedian who came out for a tour of australia and one of the one of the commercial uh, tv stations rocked up to him at the end of his tour And um, said, "So, what's what's your biggest or best memory of Australia?" Thinking he'd say, "You know, sort of, I saw a kangaroo, or the Opera House is pretty grand." Um, And he said, "The thing that's really blown me away about this country is just how comfortably racist you are. You are just so comfortable in your racism that you don't even notice that you're doing it." And and sort of, you could see the sort of interviewer sort. Recalling because he wanted it to be a warm, mm. fuzzy breakfast TV comment, and mm. suddenly this outsider who who was really quite devastated to have to say it. He said, "I'm really sorry to have to say this because I, you know, I thought I was coming to a place where I'd have a really good experience, but I've actually been quite traumatised by meeting you people. And this is a comedian, mm. you know, mm. and that that labelling and truth telling of the outsider blowing aside that because you know." The same person who talked about us having a black armband view of history also said we would, we would have the right to determine who and in what, what, um, circumstances, in what manner, yeah. the people come here and also yeah. the audacity to describe us as generous and open and accepting. And, and hmm. we, with, with our little chests puffed out, the national anthem about having you know, boundless, to share and all of that sort of stuff, and yet oh. we're just telling ourselves uh, we're just we're telling ourselves a lie. And it's only when someone comes in and says oh. the emperor has no clothes, you're actually a bunch of, bunch of comfortable racists that you actually have to think, wow. Oh. So either we need to stone this guy to death, or we need to be transformed by this incredible act of truth telling told by someone who's actually been traumatised by us and our way oh. we live
3: yeah yeah indeed um I I think there's I, th- I think there's a very real sense in which um white privilege can be understood as the capacity to not engage in these things out of the um out of the fantasy that nothing really bad is going on um mm. you know the the difference for um for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples is you cannot disengage mm. you cannot go to canada <laughs> and if you do you take all the stuff with you um you, you you can't opt out you can't opt out of the sort of daily experience of casual racism you know yeah. mm. i mean we've got some tradies here today and um the number of uh you know racist remarks that i've heard coming out of their mouths in the last 3 hours has been extraordinary so mm. uh so it, the, the level, I, I agree. The level of racism at play in a very casual way, but also deeply structured into the way that we run our institutions, is is extraordinary, yeah.
0: mm. and and pretty uh, troubling. When you consider we're trying to have a national conversation about the voice to parliament at the moment, but but maybe it is these sort of moments that do highlight the truth that is always there, just under the surface. I actually did think, Gary, you um. You wrote a brilliant piece uh, last year after the death of Queen Elizabeth II and how that actually revealed some truths about where our loyalty or allegiance really lies that maybe we aren't entirely comfortable with. Um, And I know a couple of people pointed this out that uh, when that did happen, there was obviously an appropriate response to and respect of the grief and loss of an individual human. But then, overwhelmingly, there was this, uh, I think, inappropriate outpouring of loyalty and allegiance to the monarchy itself. It was not the just the sadness that this woman had died and maybe what she had given, but suddenly that turned into, uh, you know, almost this, this glorification of the crown itself, of how good is it to, you know, like to be a part of this system i there's a grown man i work with in the entertainment industry who teared up the first time he heard god save the king and and i was thinking what is that about where does why has that made you tear up what is going on in that do do you think that has been a, a for you at least has that been a real um a real interestingly revealing exercise of of who australia uh really is
3: yeah i think that what you know there were a number of things that revealed that were revealed around that time um i mean that they've always been there i think but they just came to the surface again in a fairly explicit way um i mean i i was staggered at the number of anglican parishes for example that had uh you know special services uh to commemorate um the the, the queen um again I complete, I can completely understand that at a human level and praying for one another in times of grief and sadness absolutely but you know when the services um start to sing the sort of victory anth- anthems of the British Empire uh as part of that and um and pray for our Sovereign King uh uh you know and and, and that kind of language um it 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 has an effect on Indigenous people who, for whom the crown uh, was, um, you know, an apocalyptic visitor (laughs) uh, that destroyed our life and culture in a a sort of fairly fundamental way that we're still trying to recover from. Um, And and the lack of understanding of how that language and that sort of um, language of empire might affect uh, you know, your ordinary Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander parishioner sitting in, a, in, in, in church um, just revealed to me how we're out of sight and out of mind. Um, these decisions are made without thinking for a moment how this language and this imagery might affect us and how we might be re-traumatised and triggered by this kind of language, you know. In other words, so many of our churches are completely comfortable with the language of empire and completely comfortable with the history in which empire basically was an apocalyptic visitor upon Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And for me, that was just another reminder of how little uh, many churches care for us.
0: Mm. Yeah, it's somewhat troubling that it, there seemed to be last year more goodwill towards the crown than there has been this year. Goodwill towards indigenous and to Strait, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians around the voice to parliament. It's uh, a bit concerning that the general sentiment of the public was overwhelmingly, um, warm and positive and, um, swearing allegiance to this thing last year. And this year has seemingly tried to find any possible avenue they can to tear this, this other thing down. It's, um, I don't, I don't entirely I can't clearly state what it says about us but I don't think it's something good.
3: I was I was I guess I was amazed again at just how many people said, you know, we need to do this stuff because uh the queen and now the king is the head of our church. Um which is patently untrue in the Australian context. I mean our, our constitution uh does not name the monarch in any any way, shape or form in the constitution of the Anglican Church of Australia. Simply not named, not there at all, not mm. present. But culturally, uh, it's very, very clear that a lot of people um, are basically still operating within what I would call, you know, a kind of empire paradigm. Um, and that's where the imagination is.
2: So this, this became very clear at the time. And I think it is—it's where the imagination is—is is a good way to say it. It's—it's it's been an unseen one too, you know. And and hopefully, we can go on this this learning curve together, noticing this stuff. Noticing, gee, how how where has our imagination led us to be this year? Can we yeah. hold together? Yes, that was uh, grieving the people that felt there was that response needed, and yet, what is the response needed right now for our country um, when it comes to listening, when it comes to the voice? Um, where we can be more complex than aligning ourselves with a particular social imagination that has held our allegiance for some time, we are we are better than that. We can actually look at that and go, "Oh, look what I was doing! Look where we were! Where could, what could we become instead? Um, mm. How can we shift?" Mm-hmm. I think there has to be hope, and particularly in the Christian imagination, where there is the prophetic imagination that can lead. Um, lead the narrative how can it help us to shift not in condemning those not in condemning people but saying have you noticed that Mm. where where has that led you what does that mean for the way you are approaching listening the way you are approaching reconciliation the way you are approaching being a church that's grounded not in a country on the other side of the globe but a country a church that's grounded in the soil of this place
0: Mm. It's interesting, Gary, you mentioned earlier in the conversation um, that we, we run fast over so much ground in this culture, that that, that seems to be the way that, that we live. And I remember hearing a, um, a theologian a bunch of years ago say the phrase, it's very hard to change direction when you're running fast. <laughs> And I thought there was something in that. I mean, we know that to be quite tangibly true. The faster you're going in a car, in any vehicle, the harder it's going to be to, to turn around to change direction. You actually have to slow down to turn it to change direction. And so, you know, in terms of finding a different pace, it really does seem that that this this deep transformative work that is necessary isn't going to be possible at this pace at which we are currently moving culturally. Um, the question is, how do you come en masse to to slow down and, and, and find a way to turn around. And, and oh, I have no idea. So hopefully one of you three might.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got, uh, I've got most solutions here, sort uh, whatsoever. I mean, the only, the only solutions that present themselves to me, are uh, let's slow down enough to talk to each other, um, to really hear each other. Uh, let's slow down enough to uh, sit outside and, hear what's going on uh, in the animal and vegetable worlds around us. Um, Let's uh, let's do that and and see what emerges organically out of that sort of um, interaction, out of that sort of relationship, outside of of that sort of conversation. And, uh, you know, as for changing the mechanics of institutions and governments, I don't have a clue. Um, I really don't. and it, it troubles me, I, su- I suppose, that institutions uh, can can forget where they've come from, which is basically organising people uh, to be together in relationship and um, covenant together to do things that are good in the world. Um, how quickly our institutions that begin like that uh, end up being uh, principalities and powers that, that trample all over everyone.
2: Mm. Yeah. And that you know forgiveness i always think forgiveness is at the heart of of christian faith but that it always comes with telling the truth it always comes with taking responsibility and bearing one another's burdens with having some humility we talked about humility right at the start you know being humility grounded in the country of this place and and recognizing that we um we don't have all the answers we haven't come with some superior package of culture that everyone needs to be a part of in order to thrive. In fact, the evidence is overwhelmingly the opposite. How can we have the humility to say, gosh, we need to sit and listen to one another, to learn from one another, to actually tell the truth about the harm that has been done and commit to relationship? That's the other thing about being part of the body of Christ is that we say, we commit to you utterly and that going the distance that means the listening, even when it is hard, being prepared to change, having the humility to change, because we actually don't believe we have all the answers. Um, and how can we walk together?
3: Yeah, indeed. That's right. Um, I think I think there's a certain form of doctrine of grace, which has taken hold of most of our churches which uh, which kind of sees forgiveness as the beginning of a journey rather than the end of it. Um, uh, you know, I mean, arguably most of Scripture ha- uses the model that forgiveness is at the end of the journey rather than the beginning. Uh, you know, there's obviously um, a few passages where you could argue that's not the case. But I think overwhelmingly uh, the model is for Uh, Truth-telling, repentance in the sense of an actual change of behaviour, amendment of life, as our um, Anglican tradition would call it, uh, and forgiveness. Once there's some evidence that that's uh, sort of underway, you know. Um, But so often, I think we we're captured by um, you know this notion of prevenient grace, which says that um, forgiveness is at the beginning of the process, rather than at the end. I think that's deeply problematic, and it certainly uh, can be used in a way that sort of um, blames victims Mm. if they cannot forgive Mm -hmm. uh, because there's been no evidence of change in perpetrators and that sort of thing. Um, So, you know, the call for victims of the church's, you know, behaviour towards Indigenous people or children, for example, uh to you know for to, for those perpetrators to just forgive us forgive the church and move on uh is a form of victim blaming which i think is completely out of keeping
0: with that more biblical model yeah
1: mm.
0: yeah that's that's a profound insight gary the idea that forgiveness is sits at the end not the start of the journey i hadn't heard it put that way but but you i mean we see this even interpersonally in relationships that when somebody says they've forgiven because it feels like the right thing to do before actually the hard work of, of you know, being heard and, and having dialogue and, and, you know, these things actually have to happen. It's a bit like you can't put a, a bandage over a wound until you've disinfected the wound. It might still cover the wound, but it's just going to sit there festering and getting worse until you actually do the painful work of pouring the, uh, the antiseptic over it and, and cleaning the wound out. And so there is, the, I think that's such a helpful thing for us you know, personally and and collectively, to to realize that you don't forgiveness is the the way this whole thing's flowing. That's the direction the whole thing's flowing towards, and that is where the journey is heading. But it doesn't start there. It actually that's the the glorious garden at
2: the end of the the track. And also to not take out too often, the church uh, demands that the person who has been wounded. Should forgive the one in power. So often that is yeah. the way that, that that things flow with with um in in church teaching, um that that so that the victims again or or the poor or those who don't have a voice or those who are oppressed are are asked again and again to forgive the perpetrators who still remain in a position of power. Mm. And wherever that power dynamic is there, that's not the way prevenient work grace works. It's you know, that's actually working all in the favor of the one who already has the voice, who already has the power, you know, to continue to have that with no consequences. You know, so um I'm deeply suspicious whenever the church calls on on um victims to perp- to forgive perpetrators. Mm. Um, because it so often disregards or pretends that that power dynamic doesn't exist at all, mm. um, and that's not an example of um, of God's grace in the way that we talk about it. It's a misuse and abuse of that term, I think.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, and look, Gary, you're writing on on I suppose the the path or the journey ahead. Um, you know, if we want to find what that sort of true heart of reconciliation could look like, whatever that word might actually end up meaning i think has been incredibly incredibly helpful i know that that you've written in a number of locations that this genie can't go back into the bottle um this this thing can't be reversed what has happened and the path forward does exist but it, it lies at the end of a long long journey um and i guess we can all just um hope and pray that as a nation we'll be able to find a way to be up to to walk in that journey together um despite the slightly or, or completely concerning signs um, of the last few months on that front. Um, well, if people do want to stay up to date with your work, Gary, in this space and, and on, on many other issues, um, you, you obviously have the, the book out that we mentioned earlier, the second book, Contemplating Country, More Gondwana Theology, isn't too far away. And, and what's the best way to find your blog as well for people who want to uh, stay up to date with your posts?
3: Um. It can be found by going to uh, un- uncommonprayers.blogspot.com. Uh, uh, that's the quickest way. But um, lots of people seem to find their way there just by using search engines and, you know, typing in my name and things like that. So, so yeah, um, I, I do use, I mean, blogging is a bit old-fashioned, they tell me these days, but uh, I I find it helpful, even if no one else does, to um, to just sort of work out some thoughts and mm-hmm. often the beginnings of chapters in books or journal articles or any of that sort of stuff begin with blogging because I'm usually just responding to something that's sort of in the air and in the public conversation and, and uh, I'm trying to work out what I actually think about things, you know, so... Mm-hmm. So if people read the blogs uh, generously, uh, you know, he's Gary trying to figure things out a bit and and not entirely getting there, then, uh, you know, if it's read in that spirit, then it might be useful.
0: Yeah. yeah wonderful. Well, <laughs> Gary, it's been a, a profoundly helpful, um, I think, truthful, honest, and, and hopefully um, somewhat hopeful conversation as well. Gary Deverell, thank you so much for, for joining us today.
3: My pleasure.